Let's all pray. Our Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word. Open our minds to understand and to accept the truth of your word. And stimulate our wills to apply your word in our lives. Amen. Who can remember 1972? Some of you can, that's good. Something great, well maybe, something momentous, I'll use that word, happened in 1972. Can you remember what it was? We had a federal election, right? Now have you ever heard of a bloke called Gough Whitlam? Right? As leader of the Labour Party and hence as leader of the opposition, he organised and ran with the slogan for the election. You remember what it was? It's time. It's time. Did it resonate with the Australian people? Yes. Did it excite the Australian people? Yes. Did it bring change into the lives of the Australian people? Yes. Why? Because the Labour Party won the election. They threw out the coalition that had been in power for 23 years. But I often wonder, would Mr Whitlam have used the slogan if he had known who used it first? Who used it first? No. No, not Jesus. We'll get to him in a minute. Come on, God the Father, didn't he? When he called in Gabriel and Gabriel, and he said, Gabriel, it's time. Go and see. Oh, you've all forgotten. Starts with a Z. Go and see Zechariah. And tell him his wife's going to have a baby. Right, and he's going to be the one who comes preparing the way for the Messiah. So God the Father used its time here in this reading that we've just had from John chapter 12 Jesus uses the term it's time. It's going to be used again by them when? When Jesus comes back. That should excite us too, shouldn't it? Okay, if Gough Whitlam's use of its time excited people in Australia, how much more should Jesus' use of that term excite us? Four times in that reading that we had from John's Gospel, Jesus either explicitly or implicitly uses words that we can interpret as it's time. Before we consider what Jesus had to say, let's consider what had been happening in the lives of Jesus and his disciples in the short period of time before that. Just in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. John chapter 11. Jesus mate. Lazarus dies. He's been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus goes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out! And he does. He raises the dead. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? 
I think so. And we're told that many people believe in him in verse uh, 45. We're told that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. I think that would have lifted Jesus' spirits. But then two verses later, we're told that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Jewish High Council. They said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man, he's he's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And so what did they do? They started to plot and to scheme so that they could kill him. In verse 53 we read, So from that day on they plotted to take his life. Then we go into chapter 12. would have been exciting for Jesus to be the guest of honour at the dinner in Bethany. And at that dinner, Mary, Lazarus' brother, anoints Jesus with a costly perfume. And Jesus tells the people that she did this to prepare his body for burial. And then Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, things were going like this, weren't they, for for Jesus and his disciples had many emotional highs and lows. And and then we see something, we, we just read it, that really excites Jesus. Some Greeks come and said they wanted to see Jesus. And that's what they said to Philip. Well, Philip could have said, well, he's over there, can't you see him? So when they said they wanted to see him, what were they really saying? They wanted to have a talk to him. right? Like, I went to see the doctor on Friday. It wasn't that I wanted to look at it through the glass window. I wanted to speak with her. I wanted to have some time with her. And that's what these Greeks were wanting to do. We know nothing about them other than that they wanted to see Jesus. Not just in a physical way, but they wanted to talk to him. What was their aim? It was a bit like the Queen of Sheba coming to see Solomon, wasn't it? Their aim was to check him out. They wanted to see for themselves whether what they'd heard about Jesus was true or not. So if we had a a Channel 9 or a Channel 7 uh, interviewer there with them at the time, held up the microphone and says, hey you Greeks, tell us why you've come, what would they have said? Well I think it would have been something like this. We've heard a lot about Jesus. We've heard that he heals the sick, that he opens the eyes of the blind, that he raises the dead, that he walks on water, and that he's done many other miracles. We've heard that he teaches with authority and gives a fuller explanation of the commandments than do the teachers of the law. We've heard that his teachings can lead people to eternal life. 
We've heard that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. Now we want to see if these things are true and we want to learn whether he is worthy for us to put our faith and trust in him. So they come to Philip to see if he would arrange for them to have a meeting with Jesus. Presumably Philip didn't know what to do or what to say. So he takes them to Andrew. And then both Andrew and Philip approach Jesus and tell him these Greeks want to see him. I reckon that, you know, as they came up to speak with Jesus, that the Greeks stood a little distance off at, um, at a polite distance, waiting to see what Jesus would do. And as Jesus hears from uh, Andrew and Philip, he looks up, looks at these Greeks, and then he starts to speak. And his words were for everyone who was there within earshot. Now, while we don't know how these Greeks responded to Jesus, I think as they heard him speaking, as they looked at Jesus' body language, they would have picked up firstly on Jesus' excitement as he started to speak. What was the first thing he said? He looked at these Greeks, he heard what Philip and Andrew said, and he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's he saying? It's time. Now your homework, first lot of homework, is to go through the first 11 chapters of John and see how many times it's recorded for us that it wasn't time. I can't remember the exact number I found. It was five or six. See if you can do any better. Right? Jesus said on numerous occasions, it's not time. But this time he says, it is time. I think he was excited. I think these Greeks would have picked that up. And they would have recognised too the grace, the truth, the wonder, the life that flowed in his speech. They're truth meters. You all know that term? Truth meter, where we pick up on things that people say and we can tell whether they're telling fibs or not, right? Their truth meters would have been sky high. They would have recognised that he was speaking the truth, that they could trust him. And they would have gone away convinced that Jesus is indeed worthy for them to put their faith and trust in him. So what we're going to do is just have a look at the four things that Jesus says in his speech. Take too long to go into them all in detail, wouldn't it? So what I'm going to do is just mention a couple of things and the second part of your homework is to think about it some more and to find out all the things that I haven't touched on. But Jesus says to his, the people there, to those Greeks in particular, he says, it's time, people. First of all, he says, <coughs> pardon me, it's time to fulfill the prophecies. Jesus said, the hour has come, or it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one. It's time, Jesus, for the Son of God to be glorified. It's time to fulfil the prophecies. After this um, topsy-turvy week that Jesus and his disciples had been through, he gets excited when the Greeks come to him. You get the message he's putting out here. He says, everything is falling into place. Previously, it was not yet time for me to have my glory revealed to the people. He says, in Cana, my mother wanted me to reveal myself as Messiah. But it wasn't the right time. Then in Jerusalem, he says, they tried to take me into custody. But it wasn't the right time. Jesus' brothers said to him on one occasion, why don't you just go and reveal yourself to the world? Stop hiding away. And Jesus said, it's not time. But when these Greeks came, it was time for him to be glorified. Now is the time, he says, for me to be glorified. These Greeks, they are the first fruits of that vast, uncountable number, multitude who come from every nation, tribe, people and language group. He says, now is the time to fulfil Daniel's prophecy. Just listen to what Daniel writes. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus says it's that this is going to happen. It's time for me to be glorified. He was going to die. A kernel of wheat falls into this. I'm going to die. That's how I'm going to be glorified. And so he calls to our uh, calls here with this sta- statement the many prophecies that foretold his death. Maybe if you want some extra homework, you could look up a few more. Told he was cut off from the land of the living, and he was assigned a grave. It's time to bring in the harvest. Time to die to accomplish. And the second thing he says it's time for, you'll see it in verses 27 and 28, it's time to persevere. The words he uses are these, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this time. Father, glorify your name. He's saying now is not the time to slacken off. Now is not the time to pull out of the race that was set for me. Rather, it's time for me to reaffirm that I'm here for the long haul. It's time for me to persevere. And aren't you glad he did? And the third thing, verses 30 to 33, Jesus says, it's time to effect my purpose. He says to the people, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He 
said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now we've got a butte sermon, a butte three-point sermon in that statement, haven't we? We're not going to consider it all in detail. You've got to think about that. He said, now is the time to effect my... Firstly, to bring judgment on the world. Paul writes in Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God is angry. Angry at mankind's continuing to reject his truth and to fall for the lies and to believe the lies of Satan. God is angry at mankind's trust in its own wisdom. God is angry at mankind's continuing rebellion and sin. So what does God do with sin? First, last and always. Starts with a P. He punishes it first and always. My, uh, when we were living in Alice Springs, my daughter drove up the road a bit faster than the speed limit and there were some boys in blue waiting there for her and they gave her a ticket. Now, she didn't have any money and so she said, Dad, please help. Does the government care who pays the fine? Does the government care who pays the punishment? No. What did God He arranged for our punishment, for our penalty, to be paid by somebody else. Jesus said, it's time for judgment on this world. Jesus took on himself the sin of his people. Peter reminds us he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus is telling us that his death is God's judgment on our behalf. And the second thing in that little statement was, now is the time for the prince of this world. And we think about Jesus. Why was, how could he accomplish these things? Well, he was flesh and blood like you and me. And the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, He too shared in their humanity, so Jesus was totally human and totally God at the same time. But just think about about that aspect that he was totally human so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil or Satan. Ever think about why Jesus had to be human? Why he was human? to throw out all of those heresies that deny those things so that he could destroy the one who holds. So when Jesus died, what was he doing? He was fulfilling that promise that God gave us when? Way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Think about it, right? He said to the serpent, who was the serpent? Satan, how do we know? Where do we go to find out that that Satan, our serpent in the garden was in fact Satan? Oh, more homework.
Google's going to be busy this afternoon, isn't it? I'll give you a clue. Not in the book of Genesis. Over to the book of Revelation. And if my memory's, I think it's chapter 12. So when Jesus was dying, Satan was being defeated in fulfillment of that promise that God gave in Eden when he said to the serpent, when he said to Satan, one born of the woman is going to crush your head. He's going to utterly defeat you. And that's what Jesus did. Satan was defeated in a cosmic sense as well as in the lives of God's people. And what we're witnessing in the world today is the last roll of the dice by Satan and his minions as they try to outwit and outmaneuver God for control of the world. But is he going to win? What does God do with those who try to outmaneuver him, to those who think they can win, defeat him? What does he do? What's God's response? He laughs. Where do we find that? No, no, one in the middle, two, Psalm 2, right? And Jesus says, it's time to bring judgment on the world. It's time to defeat Satan. And in that process, the third thing he says, I, if I be lifted up, says, I will draw all people, language group and people group on earth. So the fourth thing he says it's time for, verses 35 and 36. Jesus says, it's time for people to believe in me. He says, you're going to have the light for just a little while. Right, he's talking about himself. I'm only going to be here for a while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark doesn't know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light that you may become Jesus. We in this country are blessed to have the scriptures in our own language. We have the light. Believe the light. Believe in the light, the light that Jesus brings of light. Jesus says, believe in me. And his exhortation has the urgency expressed in Hebrews chapter 3, where we're told, today... Not tomorrow, not next week, but today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but believe in God's only begotten Son, the one who has the words of truth and life. So what? How many parts does a good sermon have? Come on, I've told you before. No, not three. How many parts? Not, not, not points, parts. Easy. Two. Two two parts, the what and the so what, right? We've just had the what, we've just had the what, we've just been thinking about what Jesus was saying. So what? Well, I hope you can think of more than the three that I've got down. There's plenty there. The first one I want to say is this, be encouraged. These Greeks, were they Jews? Did Jesus say, go away? Did he say, I don't want to know you? Did he say, go and read the scriptures? Did he say, 
check with another philosopher? No, what did he do? And I want to say this, that he always responds to those who genuinely inquire about him. Give me some scripture proof. Check it out. Give me an Old Testament saying, if you like, that proves it's okay to check God out, to check Jesus out. Give you a clue, it's in the Psalms. Any takers? Taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, when I was a young fella, often went down to visit my Auntie Marge. And Auntie Marge was uh, a great one for making jams and things. Some of them were a bit strange to us. We don't know if we want that. And she said, well, cut a corner off your piece, some of this stuff on it. Taste if the Lord is good. Check it out. Check him out. Be like the Greeks, check Jesus out. Be like the Queen of Sheba who checked out Solomon. Be encouraged. It's okay to be fully persuaded in our own minds that he is who he claims to be. Second thing, that these Greeks weren't prepared to accept second-hand They wanted first-hand knowledge. So the second thing I want to suggest to you is that second-hand knowledge of Jesus must be replaced by a first-hand encounter. Just like at that village of Sychar, where Jesus was speaking to that woman at the well. And she went away into the village and said, Hey, you people, I've just met the Messiah. He's told me everything I ever did. And some of them believed because of what she said. But they said to Jesus, hey, stay here for a while, will you? And he did. He stayed there for two days. And at the end of that time, we're told that many people believed in him. And I love their comment to this woman. They said to her, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of them. They progressed from second-hand knowledge of hearing about Jesus from somebody else. They progressed to a first-hand encounter. So today, if your knowledge of Jesus is only, only what other people have told you, then I encourage you to take the time, put in the effort, like the Greeks, get to know him. Spend the time with him in the scriptures and I can guarantee you something. Your efforts won't be futile. They won't be in vain because Jesus is the rewarder of those. And the third thing in the so what, in this uh, reading, we're confronted with one of the great theological mysteries, a sovereign God and a responsible mankind. Two seemingly mutually exclusive positions. Our human logic says we can't have a sovereign God and be held responsible for what we do. Right? Our logic says that's not possible. What does the scripture say? It's not either or, but it's both. And we have a sovereign God and you and I are responsible for what we do. What was Jesus' job? What did he say he will do? I am lifted up. What's his job? To draw people. What's our job? He can't do that for us. So you and I, every person is responsible for whether they believe in him or not.
And so if you're not a, a believer in Jesus yet, and today you hear his gracious words offering you eternal life, then believe in him. And if you need some help with that, there's one, two, three, four ministers here. Talk to one of us after this. The incident that we have been, I want to suggest to you, is and thrilling. And it ought to lift our spirits and give us hope. And so I think the last words belong to in chapter 16. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for this wonderful incident that took place in Israel so long ago where these Greeks came to check Jesus. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that they were not driven away by him, but that he graciously responded to them. He graciously informed us that the time for its not time has now finished, that it was time for him to be revealed as your promised Messiah, that it was time for him to persevere and to accomplish all those things that you purposed for him to do. We thank you for his exhortation for people to believe in him. Lord, these are words of grace, our words of hope, our words of peace. Lord, we thank you for them. We especially thank you who revealed these things to us.